Hello and welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. Today we are going to discuss the Industrial Revolution and the ways that towns and cities grew around industry. For the first time, we have a special guest to shed some insight on the specific stories during the Industrial Revolution from a town called Slaterville. So, Christian de Resendez will be joining us in a bit, but right now we have Gene Anzanakis kicking us off and we'll get us started on the Industrial Revolution. So, the Industrial Revolution changed American society in a number of ways. You know, people often think of history as these single events, but I think the Industrial Revolution is proof that one event or one, one event, rather, leads to another, which leads to another, which leads to another. Before the Industrial Revolution, products were made by hand at home. It required skilled labor. If you couldn't produce your own yarn or cloth, you had to barter or trade with another family who could. Most people didn't have the money to buy ready-made clothing. When it came to clothing, most people only had a few items of clothing. You don't have closets or drawers full of clothing that you never wear like we have now. When clothing got holes, it was mended. When you grew out of it, it was given to your, your, your younger sibling. Once upon a time, to make cloth, it required a series of processes completed by different people who were highly skilled in a certain part of the process. Most people have seen images of the spinning wheel. Depending on what type of fabric you are making, you would have started out with the raw materials, sheep's wool, flax plants if you're, you know, one making linen or cotton. For wool, the sheep would have to be taken care of their coats sheared. Then the wool would have to be washed and dried. Then it would have to be carded or brushed. After that, it could be taken and spun into thread with a spinning wheel. If you were looking to make fabric out of linen, flax seeds would have to be planted and grown. They needed to be pulled by hand because the roots are needed as well. Then you had to soak those plants in water for days. Then they had to be dried. Then it had to be hit against a wooden board to break down the fibers. And you still weren't done at that point. It had to be put into a a machine known as a crimper to kind of break it down even further. And then it had to be hand pulled to really what I can only describe as like a big metal brush that looks like nails as bristles. And by the end of that stage, it almost looked like horsehair. At that point, it could be spun into thread. If you were starting off with cotton, you had to remove the seeds by hand. Each piece of cotton had about 20 seeds. It would take a person an entire day to clean, let's say, a pound of cotton. Then you would have to hit the cotton with these willow branches in a process known as willowing, which opened up the fibers. Then you would card or brush the cotton and roll it off those cards, and then it could be spun into thread. Once you had the thread, then you would send that to weavers, where they would make large rolls of fabric. People would then purchase the amount of fabric that they needed, and then make their own clothes. So this step-by-step process is known as the putting out system. 
you would send out or put out the work to various people who were skilled in that one component of the job and then it would be passed on to the next person who would complete it. Various inventions would decrease the amount of time it took to produce cloth and eventually take away the need for skilled labor altogether. Eli Whitney's invention of the cotton gin in the 1790s would revolutionize how cotton could be harvested. With the cotton gin, up to 50 pounds of cotton could be cleaned per day. This strengthened the South's desire to protect and expand slavery, and it provided the northern states with the raw materials they needed for their textile factories. Whitney's system of interchangeable parts for the creation of muskets or guns revolutionized the way that items were produced. It standardized the process of producing goods. It allowed for mass production. Things could be made quickly and parts could be replaced easily. Richard Arkwright, who started out as a wig maker by trade, thought he could improve upon the invention of the spinning jenny. The spinning jenny reduced the time it took to produce yarn or thread, but the thread that it produced was very weak. With the help of a friend, a man by the name of John Kay, who was a clockmaker actually, he designed what would be known as the water frame. The machine was powered by a water wheel and drastically improved the strength of the thread. Arkwright established a number of factories throughout England. Richard Arkwright is considered like the father of the Industrial Revolution in England. The factory system that was established in England, they sought to keep the innovations of the Industrial Revolution from spreading to its former colonies. They tried to prevent textile workers from emigrating and even outlawed taking blueprints of the machines to, to the United States. They were successful for a time, but eventually one man who worked in one of Richard Arkwright's factory was able to come to the United States and to create the first factories here. And that person is Samuel Slater. Now, again, perspective matters. Here in the United States, Samuel Slater is often called the father of the Industrial Revolution. But in Great Britain at the time, he was called a traitor. In history books, Samuel Slater gets all of the credit. But a new documentary that has really been eight or nine years in the making already is shedding light on how Samuel Slater was able to do what he did. So as I teased in the opening, we have a special guest with us today, Christian De Resendez. He's the director of the documentary Slatersville, which is going to premiere in the fall of 2021 on Rhode Island PBS. And 
Jean Ann came across his website with the trailer on it when she was doing the research for this this episode on the Industrial Revolution and reached out to him to see if he would be willing to discuss his project and answer some questions on how it relates to Samuel Slater. Christian, we're so excited for you to be here today with us and share really your wealth of knowledge on this topic. So how did Samuel Slater and his brother John create the first mill village in the United States? It is known within the family that Samuel Slater was the machine man. Like he really knew the mechanics of operating those devices. But John Slater, who was much younger and stayed longer in England, was a wheelwright. His understanding of water power far exceeded that of Samuel's. So if Samuel knew that he was going to have to expand over here, he needed his brother to come over. And he did. 1803 or so, he arrives. 1806, May 26th of that year, they found Slatersville. And by July 4th of 1807, the mill opens officially. Uh, when they get here, um, John Slater and Sam Slater go looking for land near water that they can use. When they get to what is now Slatersville, they find an area called Buffum's Mills, okay? And they purchase the uh, land rights and water rights. Um, I believe it's about 1,200 acres at that point. And they just build the dams. They, they construct the dams, and they build the first mill that opens in 1807, as I said, then uh, fire destroys that mill in 1826, and it is very quickly replaced by a, a, a stone structure and bell tower that is still standing today. What would people be surprised to know about the factory and the surrounding village of Slatersville? People made their living off the land. They existed off the land, farmers and so on. And there were some artisan shops here and there. But this was a concentrated, orchestrated effort on the part of mass industrialization that uh, had not been done before. And to us, that's like a regular thing now. I think that would be a major thing. The other element is the fact that when they started this, there was no real blueprint. You know, we're going to create this village concept, a New England village. We're going to own everything there. We're going to own the mill building. We're going to build buildings around it so we can add to our needs as a business. We're going to build housing for the workers. And we're going to build some centers, a meeting house, uh, some commercial block buildings and all of that. Now, they didn't go in having this whole thing laid out. They added these buildings out of necessity as they went along. But it took a long time. I mean, they didn't go in and, you know, logic would tell us today, hey, there needs to be a general store. There needs to be a meeting location. They need to be this or that. If the village opens in 1806, the mill opens in 1807, and the commercial block buildings aren't built until 1840 and 1850. The Slatersville Congregational Church is... The congregation is formed in 1816, but the church isn't built until 1838. The housing is what came in first, about 1810-ish, 
Okay. So now they need to bring in workers for these factories. Correct. And so they are providing that housing there. So housing, yes, that would make uh, sense to be there first. But as far as the other stuff that would be needed for your workers to stay there, I mean, one of the things that comes out that's very important in, in the England portion of the story is Jedediah Strutt, who Sam Slater apprenticed to for six and a half years, needed to keep his workers happy if they were going to stay. They needed, so he made a life for them as much as possible by giving them lots to grow vegetables, giving them places to meet, giving them activities, and so on. The Slaters had to do the same thing, though they were a little slower to move on it in some ways. One of the things that you know, and I, you and I have touched upon is Sunday school. The first Sunday school in the country. I think it's a little hard to say, but my understanding is the first Sunday school was prob the very first one was probably in Pawtucket. Slatersville, as it grew, knew that they needed to do something with the kids on a Sunday. The the women and children, and any men who happen to be employed in the mill, worked six days a week for grueling hours, and on Sunday they needed to give them Sunday something to do. So that was the one day a week that they were educated. Sunday school as we know it today is regarded more as, as a religious classroom. This was not such a thing. It was something that it was the one day a week that where these kids got reading, writing, arithmetic, whatever it was that was needed for some form of education. And, and Slatersville Congregational Church had one of the first very earliest Sunday schools in the country. Amos Lockwood was a mill supervisor. He was not a Slater by blood, but he had a profound impact on the village history. And he was here for several decades, at least four decades. He was a mill supervisor. He had a bunch of roles within the community. He also was a member of the church. I think it was a board member of the church. And he ran the Sunday school. So when these kids came in line to have their Sunday school weekly, um, they weren't going to mess around. I mean, that Sunday school was, that Sunday morning was used for religious teaching, but the Sunday school was also used for uh, social control, you know. Keep these kids in line. They're not going to screw around, you know. I mean, you need to keep your entire village man, woman, and child uh, regimented and disciplined in order to keep the manufacturing business going. And even then, the money that they got went back into the village, you know, whether it be like a general store. Well, guess who owns the general store? They, they get it back anyway. In your research for the film, you learned of an endowment made by John Fox later that allowed for the education of freedmen in the years following the Civil War. In what ways do you think that that donation made an impact on American history? John Fox is sent to Jewett City to supervise the family mills. 17. This is 1832. He winds up there. He stays there. He does very well for himself. In the decades that follow, uh, he makes a lot of money. He ends up, because he is very good friends with the governor of Connecticut, he ends up getting a lot of Civil War contracts. 
So they're manufacturing Civil War supplies in his mill in the Ponema Mill, which is in Taftville, Connecticut, which was a huge, huge, enormous mill that is absolutely beautiful that was recently saved and made into apartments. And this is what he's doing. So he's making a lot of money off the Civil War. And as you know, the North relied on the slavery and economics of the South in order to get cotton up here to make cloth. So John Fox knew that a lot of his money came from this system. By about 1882, he creates something called the John Fox Slater Fund for the Education of Freedmen. President Rutherford B. Hayes is chairman And so this is $1 million of his money, the equivalent of about $25 million today, that goes toward the educations of Booker T. Washington, George Washington Carver, W.E.B. Dubois, uh, major pioneers in the early civil rights movement. Do you think that John Fox Slater creates this endowment to make up for the fact that he made so much money off of slave labor? I, I believe that that's a big part of it. Um, I don't think John Fox was a bad person. I, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he was or not, to be quite honest, but I have to think that when you're reaching the end of your life and you look back at how well to do you are, how how well to do your situation is, and you have all of this money, and times are changing, then that's what you do. But also keep in mind one thing about him that's interesting is he was sent to a boarding school, I believe, in the Wilbraham, Massachusetts area, which is like Central Mass. And it's there that he encounters people of different races and cultures in a way that he would not have if he stayed here. So he had an education that was more worldly, and he became an abolitionist pretty early on. So he was, abol- he was an abolitionist, yet he was making all this money off of this system that required slavery to produce products that would be sent up north for his factories to run, and then... He makes a lot of money off the Civil War, and then 1882, two years before his death, he announces this fund. You've spent almost the last decade doing this story. If you could ask Samuel Slater or John Fox Slater any question, what would it be? How did you survive? To me, one of the biggest threads through this entire film is the loss of children. It's brutal to me. I've done four films about the loss of children, not including Slatersville. I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. You're a mother. You understand. I have my son as well. How did you get through that? How did you bear it? You know, that's one thing. But that's a very... Going beyond that, that's a very large question to answer because I have to look at it my own way when I. So if you want me to ask Sam or John Slater a question, I could go back and ask them. But, you know, I think it's more like I would be telling them like you came over on a boat. You didn't tell your mom you got on the boat. You had your apprentice paper sewn into your clothing 
you either mentally remembered the plans or had them on you for how to construct machinery, and you set up shop and you fought the good fight in your very early 20s and you did what you did. All these portraits and paintings of Samuel Slater that exist are of an old man. You have to remember there's an arrogant early 20-something kid who knows everything and he's coming here to prove it. And he had to fight once he got that deal. And Moses Brown and Almy just wanted to hire him and make them his mechanic. And he's like, no, I'm your partner in this because you don't get anywhere without my knowledge and my know-how in order to build these things. And so they probably reluctantly was like, all right, we'll make you a partner. So you know, he had to fight. They, even with their successes, everything was very much earned. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Um, we're so appreciative that you were able to share with us some of the footage from this documentary. I really hope people will take the time to, to watch it. It really is wonderful. Well, thank you very much for having me. And, and uh, when I announced this, a lot of people were really excited to learn about it. Oh, I'm sure. You know, for myself, in all of the books that I have read on the era, I have never seen John Slater discussed. And so I think your documentary does a really great job of highlighting the contributions he made. Because really without him, I don't think Samuel Slater could have done what he did. So Slatersville was an example of a town that came to be built around industry during the Industrial Revolution. Who are some other key players in spreading the Industrial Revolution in the United States? Yeah, so you know Samuel Slater was not the only one to build factories. Francis Cabot Lowell went to England and learned about the textile industry. When he returned to Massachusetts, he established the Boston Manufacturing Company. Lowell had big plans, but those plans were expensive. You know, big ideas, you better have big pockets. And so he sold shares of his company and raised the necessary funds to purchase the land along the Charles River and the machines needed for the factory. Once he had established the building, now he needs the workers. Unlike other factories who hired men, women, and children, the Lowell system hired young girls between the ages of 15 and 30. You have to understand that these are young girls who lived on farms. They are used to hard work. Many of them, in addition to farm and housework, also took in work in, you know, as part of the former putting out system that we had discussed earlier in the podcast. For young girls, their options are limited. For farm families whose income was often uncertain, the idea of having a steady income was very attractive. For families to be comfortable sending their young daughters to work far away at the mills, Lowell and other factory owners like him built boarding houses. These boarding houses would have a matron, a female overseer, sometimes like a husband and wife team, to watch over the girls. The mill girls, as they were called, had a curfew. They were expected to follow a moral code of conduct. The factory owners ensured the workers had access to pianos and libraries. The mill girls established a newsletter called the Lowell Offering. 
They often wrote poems and stories and songs. There is a wealth of primary source documents as a result of that newsletter. We have a very clear picture of what life was like in these factories. The boarding houses slept at times six girls to a room with girls sharing beds. They were poorly ventilated. They often had about 30 minutes for meals during their long work day, which tended to last anywhere from 12 to 16 hours per day, six days a week. Factory life was very hard. It was noisy. Women and children were whipped for mistakes. It was dangerous. You know, small children would be expected to go into the machines and to fix them. And if they were hurt, you know, there's no such thing as, you know, workers comp. There's no such thing as the employer getting in trouble if the employee gets hurt. You know, if these children were hurt, it was their fault. They were probably beaten for, for you know, slowing down production. They were kept very busy. They often had to watch over four looms at a time. So while there is access to things like pianos and libraries, how much time do they actually have to partake in those types of leisure activities? Factory work, it was hard and it was tedious. Trying to get people to come and work in those factories, this was a job in and of itself. You had to travel around, convince young girls and their parents that this was a good idea. Keep in mind, the further a young girl lived from the factory, the harder it would be for her to leave that job, which the factory owners knew. You no longer need skilled labor. You want unskilled labor. And with the waves of immigration that the United States will see in the late 1800s, there is an abundance of cheap, unskilled labor. Now, once you have these items produced in their factories, how do you get them to the people who want to buy them? How these items got into the hands of consumers changed as well with the building of railroad tracks and the creation of steam or coal-powered locomotives. Railroads, which were first introduced in Britain, quickly changed the landscape of transportation of transportation for both people and goods. By the 1830s, we are seeing the creation of railroad companies. And when we talk about the Civil War in later podcasts and the advantages that the North had, railroad lines will, will play a role in that. Eventually, in the 1860s, with the Transcontinental Railroad, further westward settlement was possible and life on the frontier will be made somewhat easier. Another big change was with communication. Communication wasn't always as instant as it is today. You know, ancient civilizations, they used smoke signals. They would light a torch. Somebody further down would see the torch. They would light theirs, you know, ringing bells to sound an alarm. But when other countries wanted to communicate, they had to send letters on horseback or on a ship. Depending upon the distance, it would take weeks or months to get the message there and even longer to get a response. This changed in the 1840s with the invention of the telegraph. 
Samuel B. Morse sent the first message via telegraph in 1844. In 1866, when the first transatlantic cable was laid down, now the United States could communicate with European countries instantly. Using Morse code, which uses a series of dots and dashes for each letter of the alphabet, what used to take weeks or months now took mere minutes. The impact of the Industrial Revolution is a a significant one. You know, I often talk about history having these ripple effects. I like to give the example of a single raindrop hitting the surface of the water. The water doesn't just ripple on the surface, but all the way down. All of these seeds are being planted. With the need for unskilled and cheap labor brings rise to immigration. There is a reason why we want you're tired, you're poor, you're hungry. We want them to work in our factories. Terrible working conditions and long hours will give rise to the creation of labor unions. The need for raw materials and new markets for our factory-produced goods, this will lead to imperialism. The United States will become an imperial power. New forms of labor and increases in wealth for some will lead to new classes. We will eventually see the working class, an increased middle class, and industrial capitalists and large bankers. All of these innovations will lead to the second industrial revolution in the late 1800s and early 1900s. You can even make the connection to unintended effects, like with the endowment that we discussed earlier by John Fox Slater, which provided for the education of freedmen after the Civil War and establishes the Tuskegee Institute. Think about all of the people, all of the leaders of the future civil rights movement who maybe would not have been without it. So there are all of these connections throughout historical events that are really incredible to see. Wow, lots of great information in this one. Gene, thank you, and special thanks to Christian de Resendez for joining us today. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.